Hey, John, election day is coming. Can I get the COVID vaccine before I head to the polls? Sorry, no. You, my friend, may be the last in line. So, John, a vaccine is going to be approved, you know, one of these days soon. And once it is, how, fa- how, how fast do you think COVID will be vanquished? I, I, come on. I mean, we all know that this vaccine thing is being oversold because we're in an election year. We need a vaccine, but it's not really going to come fast. And as you know, vaccines are really complicated. I mean, vaccines, when people think vaccine, they think instant solution. Measles vaccine, 97% effective. Polio, 99% effective. We're talking about a coronavirus. The coronavirus presents in the same way that the flu coronavirus does. And the flu vaccines are only like 40 to 50% effective. So even when the vaccine comes, we've got to be really careful that not everybody has the delusional expectations that, like, that you have, that there's going to be an instant solution and it's going to show up quickly like a miracle. Well, John, I think you're right about that. You know, there's some other things besides the effectiveness. There's also distribution, you know, which we, we talked about on the podcast. It's also a question of just how long does the protection last, assuming that it that it works. And then what else is happening uh, at the same time? So I think I think I think you're right. And you know, these well, trials. But but wait a second. What do you mean by how long it lasts? I'm assuming that if it works, it works, right? Listen, that would be a nice simple solution. But you know, you get the flu vaccine every year. Uh, you get you need booster shots for some. Uh, some of these vaccines, and it's just sort of unknown how long it's going to last. So you can't just assume that you're safe to walk around uh, around forever. And that's one of the reasons why these vaccine trials have to continue. It's not enough just to have uh, the vaccine approved because the first approvals are just showing, you know, when some dozens of people in the control group get COVID and people in the other taking the vaccine uh, didn't. You need a lot more data to see how it works. Well, there's no question that we are in the big, the biggest largest social medical experiment that the world's ever seen with more science moving faster than certainly I I think we could imagine leveraging uh, computers and machine learning and AI and research being shared across border, 300 plus candidates for vaccines. But I think the thing that people have to realize is that vaccines are not always a miracle cure and the miracle cure doesn't always happen. We've been looking to do a an HIV vaccine for nearly 20 years and have made very little progress. John, there's some things that I'd love to see, you know, studied in the vaccine trials. I'll just throw them out there in case people are are, are listening who might be designing those. So one is there's some specific populations, you know, uh, older people, younger people, sicker people, men versus women. We want to know how long the protection lasts. We also want to know, you know, like with the flu vaccine, a lot of times it might not prevent you from getting the flu, but it might make it less severe. And there's also a question since we know COVID is so, uh, is so transmissible and so infectious, whether it means that once you have the vaccine, you know, are you going to still transmit it to, to others uh, or not? And there's going to be a bunch of vaccines. So we need to know once there's God willing a choice, you know, how to compare one with another. Well, I think, I think your point about data is really critical because it, it, the reality is that we, we do have different kinds of drugs and vaccines can affect different subpopulations differently. And I think there will be clearly an enormous amount of pressure to get this out and try to create what's effectively herd immunity. But, you know, herd immunity isn't really going to be 
realistically achieved until you're well over 60 or 70% based on the, the, the current estimates of people taking the vaccine. And we're currently seeing a situation where, you know, almost a quarter of people don't want to take the vaccine. I mean, what kind of environment are we creating or kind of solution do you think we're going to see, David, if you've got a vaccine out there of uncertain duration and only a third of the people or say 30 to 50% of people who could take it uh, do actually uh, get vaccinated? I'm going to treat that as a rhetorical question, John, because I think the answer is we're not going to have that much protection, you know, if that happens. I think you, you realize that. You know, there is work being done now in terms of, you know, who gets a shot when. And I, I asked before, am I going to get it on my way to the uh, the polling place? And no, I'm not. But, you know, there's some there's some principles that are being put out there. There's a four-phase approach that's being talked about. What's, what's your view about, like, when am I going to get my shot? When are you going to get your shot? Well, I, I, I would imagine that we would be pretty far down. I think you, 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 you clearly, once we have a vaccine that we think works, I think the, 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 the first group to get that vaccine or to be protected, the priority groups have to be the frontline doctors and caregivers, um, the paramedics, the, the, the caregivers in nursing homes, that are that are that are exposed. Um, I, I've got to think that the people who take care of us have to be the first people who we take care of. Um, and then I think you got to look at folks who have who are high risk factors, like uh, uh, the the folks who are who are the, the current targets, folks who are with di- diabetes or folks who are older with multiple chronic conditions. Um, you know, and and I think that anyone who's who's at the you know, we have this weird thing with the coronavirus where a number of people get it, but some of them are super spreaders. If we could make sure those super spreaders are eliminated from places where they, or from, from food distribution or, or hospitals uh, care, where they're touching a lot of vulnerable patients, or they're just touching a lot of people and situations, I think that, that, that those would be the priority, the, the caregivers and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the patients or the potential patients who are most at risk. Where, where, how would you prioritize it? Well, John, I think you're, we're seeing that great minds uh, work alike, at least uh, John Driscoll and the National Academies of Sciences and the CDC, because they're developing something similar. And they have uh, some, uh, some principles about how they do it, about different risks of acquiring infection and risk of, uh, of serious illness and, and death and negative social impact. So they've got a, a four-phase approach. It's like what you described. You get the health risk you know, the high-risk healthcare workers and the first responders are those with comorbid conditions. Uh, but then they move to the second phase is people like uh, K-12 to teachers and staff and essential workers. They get to young adults and kids and then everyone, which I guess is going to be us. And they talk explicitly about equity being a cross-cutting consideration. And they actually talk about systemic racism and the disproportionate impact on people of color. So I think a lot about how this is implemented actually depends on who's in the White House. If it's Biden, then I think you're more likely to follow the principles and the guidelines. If it's Trump, it's kind of a weird situation because on the one hand, I think those are sort of the powerful will grab up the vaccine first on the one hand, but on the other hand, you've got a lot of vaccine skeptics too. So I don't know how it will play out. Well, I, I, I think the, the, most, the strangest thing is that, is that Trump has, has both put more money towards vaccines than any other uh, president or government in, in, in U.S. history. At the same time, he cultivates, supports, and spreads uh, a lot of the anti-vax Movements, uh, uh, you know, sort of, sort of, sort of, uh, what they call th- their their truths, which which I think are a bunch of lies. Um, he's be- very much taken a position um, to tolerate, if not support, 
uh, anti-vaxxers. And, uh, you know, it's sort of a peculiar position to be committing, uh, you know, tens of billions of dollars to, to, to the supply chain, to manufacturing, to research, and then to sort of suggest or support skeptics. I, I, I do think you're making a really important political point that if we want to support science and we want government to work and care to be equitable, there's just not a question. You got to be a supporter of, of, uh, of Joe Biden. And I think it's going to be quite confusing uh, if the Trump administration, while tolerating it, the anti-vax movement, is also trying to distribute vaccines. I don't, I don't see how that uh, is, is, is going to work too well. Um, but uh, so I don't think we've seen the last of uh, masks and social distancing. Well, John, I, I think the uh, you know the the anti-vaxxers and the anti-maskers will uh, will have to be out uh, together for for Halloween, if not uh, if not sooner. And that the fact is, we still will need to wear masks and do social distancing, uh, even with the vaccine uh, in place. I got a couple of other topics before we round things out, and and one is about schools. You know, I thought that we would probably prioritize schools, but I want to know what you think about how the vaccine availability is going to affect schools. And then I want to talk about nursing homes after that. Yeah, I, I think with, with regard to schools, because in general, you've got a lot of very young people who tend to be taught by very old people. Uh, you know, f- some of the best examples recently of solving the school pro- opening problem are, are, are schools like the ones being supported by the Broad up near you in, in Boston, where they are testing constantly and they're doing contact tracing and they're quarantining with some discipline. You, know, you have testing and tracing in place, particularly with the population, kids who, although they might get infected, are unlikely to get really sick. If you're testing people three times a week and really doing uh, rigorous contact tracing and, 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 and required quarantining, I think you could open up the schools and we could wait on the vaccine and not worry about that. I think what we need to be focusing on is the vaccines, which are, or we, we, we should honestly be focusing on testing and tracing capacity uh, for across the country. But the one place where it's shown it's absolutely working are you know, schools like the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana, which is a large public school, um, the Colby, the Bates, the MITs, and, and closer to where you are, um, um, Delaware State. I mean, where you've got a, a, a whole range of historically black colleges or big public colleges or small private colleges, where you've got that testing and tracing in place, there are, it's a model for how to reopen society and you can kind of put the vaccines aside. It's effectively why Germany is open and we are not even though because they've got testing and tracing in place. I, 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 the one place I still worry are nursing homes and, 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 the, and elderly folks with comorbid conditions. I, I think they're going to be vulnerable for a while. What do you think? John, on the school side, I think you're right at the kind of post-secondary at the college level. Um, for the younger kids, K through 12, it's more, of a, it's more of a challenge because you know the vaccines are out there. They're not really being tested on, on kids. So that means that you wouldn't really want to require uh, someone to get the vaccine, um, you know, to go to school. And, and especially, you know, if you compare that with something like like measles or mumps or rubella, which are childhood illnesses, uh, where you have vaccines tested on kids and that it affects kids, um, then you're going to see that. Now, fl- flu shots you don't normally require, but this year places like Massachusetts are requiring it. So I think the, the main impact that having the vaccine is going to have on the schools for K through 12 is that the staff and the teachers are going to be able to be vaccinated. So I think that's that's there. Now, nursing homes, you know, John, uh, you and I aren't huge promoters of, of nursing homes kind of in general. So we think that uh, people can be in their own homes whenever whenever possible. Vaccine, I'll point out, also really hasn't been tested on nursing home populations um, either. 
I do think that if the distribution follows the principles that we talked about with the CDC and the National Academy of Sciences, that actually should help because the workers there who have been a big vector of bringing the disease around, you know, they're going to be they're going to be vaccinated. So that that's kind of how I see getting out of it. But I but I I do think David, we're missing the whole point here about the opportunity with testing and tracing. We're betting hundreds of billions of dollars globally on a vaccine that may or may not work. When with tens of billions, we could set up testing and tracing and open up society right now. I think while we're focused on the vaccine and gosh, it's exciting and the notion that. I mean, we, we are currently in an administration that, that uh, is either hoping for miracles or believes in miracles. I'm not quite sure which, which depending on the day, uh, we, sh- we, we, we should be building on what works right now and investing on what could work tomorrow, as opposed to assuming that tomorrow is going to come closer to today. Because I, I do think that the vaccine is a high risk, complicated solution um, to, a, to a very dangerous uh, uh, COVID that is that has you know, broken our economy and 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 is hurting and is infecting and making too many people sick. We don't have to be here, John. I I would agree, and I think we're going to have to use all everything at our disposal: the social distancing, the mask wearing, the vaccines, testing. And uh, as I saw somebody say the other day, we, we may have fatigue about the virus, but the virus doesn't have fatigue about us. It can go on indefinitely. Well, on that happy note, <laughs> yeah. Well, let's wrap it up, Johnny. I can't imagine where the next questions are going to go. So that's it for another edition of Care Talk. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of Care Centrics. Thanks for listening.